0: in recent weeks to talk about uh, tech and we've also talked a lot about uh, some things that are going on in China that we're not too happy about and of course when you find an interface between the two bad tech and China well that's a natural isn't it but although I have an article on my left hand that uh, that that deals with that very issue we're going to postpone that a little bit because I think it requires spending a little time on and it appears for the rest of this show we don't have that time but I stumbled on an article or two that really kind of opened my eyes about something that I'd been wondering about for a while, and I want to discuss those with you, dear friends. How can I resist an article from SF Gate titled, You've Seen the Ads, But What's the Deal with Shen Yun? In the piece by Alex Martichot, they posit that unless you live under a rock, you've probably seen a billboard or heard dozens of ads for Shen Yun Performing Arts. In the Bay Area, people are so used to seeing ads on TV on the sides of buses, come December anyway, that people even joke winter should be renamed Shen Yun season. Note the author, when I started writing this article about two minutes ago, I've already seen a spot run on KTVU. But what is it, he asks, and then notes the answer is a little complicated. Shenyun Yun builds itself as the world's premier classical Chinese dance and music company. If you're to believe Shen Yun's own advertisements, you'll get so much more. The hyperbolic 2020 tour ad promises the performance is, quote, so inspiring, it changes your life, end quote. The former minister of culture for the Czech Republic has quoted one ad calling it truly a touch of heaven. But surprise, surprise, the ads may be overselling it a bit. Peace notes that some people who go to the show complain they didn't know what they were in for. Because nowhere in the effusive ads is it mentioned that Shen Yun has a political bent. Shen Yun translates to divine rhythm. And according to the show's website, the artists who put it on practice Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, a belief system that encompasses meditation, Tai Chi-type exercises, and strict morality, meaning smoking, alcohol, and extramarital or same-sex relationships go against their teachings. An article in The Guardian in 2017 describes part of the show. The curtain rose on a group of young students sitting in peace, meditating, and reading oversized yellow Falun gong books. The dancers performed elaborately pantomimed good deeds, helping an old woman with a cane, chasing down a woman who had dropped her purse. But when one unveiled a Falun gong banner, suddenly a trio of men wearing black tunics emblazoned with a red hammer and sickle entered. The commie thugs began beating people up, clubbing and kicking innocent faloon gong followers. The Fresno B called the show a beautiful and odd production that veers wildly between two extremes. Delicate artistic expression on the one hand, and a brusque, heavy-handed effort to inculcate political and spiritual viewpoints on the other. Some who posted reviews weren't as eloquent. Be warned, said one, religious sermon... I walked out as soon as anti-evolution statements were made on the screen. False advertising. The Chinese Communist government of the People's Republic of China is not exactly a fan. The practice of Falun Gong is forbidden in China, and its members are routinely persecuted. In condemning the, quote, so-called Shen Yun, unquote performance, the embassy's website calls Falun Gong a cult that seriously harms society and violates human rights and is a cancer on the body of modern civilized society. To which the Guardian retorted, there's no evidence of the kind of coercive control that the label suggests. Besides, it's not like the Chinese government has a stellar human rights record. Anyway, I've been tempted to see the show after seeing all these ads and these colorful dancers, and it looks kind of uh, acrobatic and interesting, but... uh, uh i don't know i don't want to get a political lecture well not lecture exactly but you know heavy-handed performance but what really struck me as odd about faloon gong is there's a connection between it and the epic times there's a 7-11 near me that where i see copies of the epic times and i always have to laugh at the headlines because it looks like it's being written by uh i don't know team trump it looks like roger stone had a hand in selecting some of the headlines Anyway, there is a connection between Falun Gong and the epic Times, and the Europeans are a little bit concerned about it. Apparently, this obscure newspaper is described as fueling the far right in Europe. Back in 2017, Stephanie Albrecht, investigative reporter for the German broadcaster RTL, was in the midst of what would become a prize-winning investigation of Alternative for Germany, a far-right party that would go on to shock the world by winning seats in parliament on an anti-immigrant, anti-Islamic message. Like some of their alt-right peers in the U.S., supporters of the AFD just trust traditional media, preferring to consume the work of alternative news sources, typically shared through Facebook. One of their principal sources of information was an online newspaper, little known outside of far-right circles. That's how Albrecht, armed with a hidden camera, came to spend several days filming inside the Berlin offices of the Epic Times. What Albrecht got was a rare look into the strange and secretive world of the newspaper, which was founded by practitioners of the Falun Gong spiritualist discipline that originated in China. The Times staff members, which Albrecht met, were all devotees of Falun Gong. Every day at 6 p.m., a bell rang. Everyone in the newsroom stopped what they were doing, sat at the desks, and meditated. Even stranger were the topics of discussion. The conversations were weird, Albrecht told me over the phone. I was there for half an hour, and they talked about so many conspiracy theories. It was raining outside and they started talking about how these machines can change the weather have you recognized that it was raining the day before the brexit election maybe somebody wanted to influence that in the us the times bills itself as the newspaper that president donald trump views as the most credible and the only one he trusts the us version of the paper is tamer than its german cousin but it is won over fans of the far right with its exhaustive coverage of spygate a theory pushed by the president, who (laughs) claims the FBI spied on his campaign and a criminal deep state sought to undermine his presidency. Revenues for the paper have doubled since Trump took office. Anyway, this is a story worth running down. I've been tempted many times to buy a copy of the Epic Times. I will do so in the future, and after snagging one, bring it home and see if I can uh, talk about some of their alternative facts and alternative news notions. All right, let's take a turn back from China into the U.S. and the Silicon Valley and talk about an article in the December 2nd issue of The New Yorker, which is going to be worth some mention. It was titled The Defector by Brian Barth, and it was about Roger McNamee. Back in 1982, Roger was a 26-year-old analyst at T. Rowe Price. The personal computer revolution was just beginning And McNamee invested in Electronic Arts, now a leading video game maker, and Sybase, a pioneering database firm, among others. In 1991, he partnered with the venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins, where he listened to pitches for Netscape and Amazon. He invested in those, too. And a few years later, he co-founded Silver Lake Partners. The portfolio that Silver Lake, now the businesses in Silver Lake's portfolio, now produce $230 billion in annual revenue. McNamee has mentored many of the people who transformed Silicon Valley. In 2006, when Facebook was a two-year-old company with less than $50 million in annual revenue, McNamee advised Mark Zuckerberg to turn down Yahoo's offer to buy it for a billion. It's now worth more than $500 billion. McNamee saw the tech industry as an experiment in creative and profitable problem-solving. He grew unnerved by its ethical failures only in 2012 when Uber came to him for investment capital. He decided the Silicon Valley had changed. These guys all wanted to be monopolists, he said recently. They all wanted to be billionaires. McNamee was convinced that Facebook was different. In February of 2016, shortly after he retired from full-time investing, he noticed posts in his Facebook feed that purported to support Bernie Sanders but struck him as fishy. That spring, the social media-fueled vitriol of the Brexit campaign seemed like further proof that Facebook was being exploited to sow divisions among voters, and the company executives had turned a blind eye. The more McNamee listened to Silicon Valley critics, the more alarmed he became. He learned that Facebook allowed facial recognition software to identify users without their consent and let advertisers discriminate against viewers. Real estate companies, for example, could exclude people of certain races from seeing their ads. Ten days before the presidential election, McNamee sent an email to Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. I'm disappointed, I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed, he wrote. Facebook has done some things that are truly horrible and I can no longer excuse its behavior. Facebook is enabling people to do harm. It has the power to stop that harm. What it currently lacks is the incentive to do so. Within hours, Zuckerberg and Sandberg sent McNamee Cordial replies, assuring him they were already working to address some of the issues he'd raised. They dispatched a Facebook executive, Dan Rose, to talk to him. Rose told McNamee that Facebook was a platform, not a publisher, and couldn't control all user behavior. Since leaving the investment world, McNamee has been looking forward to being a full-time musician. But Rose's dismissiveness rattled him. They were my friends. I wanted to give them a chance to do the right thing. I wasn't expecting them to go oh my god, stop everything. But I was expecting them to take it seriously. It was obvious they thought it was a PR problem, not a business problem, and they thought the PR problem was me. McNamee hasn't spoken to Sandberg or Zuckerberg since. Both declined to comment for this article. This article, by the way, is something else I'm going to defer in part to next week's program because there's so much here to discuss. We, again, are a little pressed for time. The article does mention Tim Wu, law professor at Columbia, who has pointed out that few of the current proposed policies on privacy would have any effect on whether a company can collect private data only on how it can be used. If McNamee had his way, most of Google and Facebook's revenues would disappear overnight since nearly 90% of both companies' money comes from ads, targeted ads based on the data they know about you and me. McNamee's written a book, about uh, his experience, which he titled Zucked, (laughs) went on a book tour last year. Author Brian Barth followed McNamee to a conference. In one case, the Truth About Tech conference held in April at Georgetown University. At that point, he bumped into Peter Lord, vice president of the software company Oracle. Lord had the innards of an Android phone splayed out on a table. McNamee told me theatrically, you can stay, but this is off the record. Lord regarded the author sternly. He said, I later found out that most of what Lord discussed in it was in a YouTube video of a talk he gave last year. A tangle of wires led from a disassembled Android to a laptop where data from the phone's sensors appeared, updating each second. This amount of data, Lord explained, gesturing at the screen, clogged with numbers, was routinely collected on each of Google Android's approximately 2 billion users. Skipping ahead a little bit, it notes that all modern smartphones, including iPhones, contain hardware that monitors users' activities and locations. But MacTomy and experts agree that Androids are unique in the extent to which they collect and retain user information. I want to pause at this point to note that, you know, I took some time to check out this video, or at least one of them, from Peter Lord on YouTube, and I was a bit shocked despite being a technical ignoramus about such matters what surprises me is that tech savvy people are also apparently shocked by this presentation. So I had someone that knows a lot more about computers than me, computer science PhD, Donald Rose, frequent contributor to this program. I had him take a look at this video and uh, apparently he was a little bit surprised by what he saw as well. So I thought I would have him do was come to speak with us several times about what he experienced watching that video. And the first of those segments will air now. So let me note at this juncture that we would welcome you back to Radio Parallax, uh, Donald Rose.
1: Thank you, Doug. It's great to be back.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, you just saw this video with Peter Lord, and he looked pretty surprised by what you saw. Uh, What surprised you?
1: I have to say, I I really was shocked. I, I know that you had mentioned that you were surprised by a lot of it. And and i have to agree 100% agree with what you know what you were saying the fact that the amount of data what really shocked me was the amount of data that was being sent by the phone and also the granularity i mean i always thought that it would send maybe you know occasional updates about where you were and it wouldn't go into a lot of specifics but from this video, it, okay, it, what do
0: you what do you mean by granularity?
1: The granularity would be like how specific is, is it? Every second? Oh, I see. And is it, what is it trying to to tell Google? I thought maybe it would say, you know, oh well, you know, he's on this block or he's uh, he's headed this way because you know when, when it says when when the when Google says, hey, do you want to turn on location services? And I say yes. I just assume well, it needs it needs that to make Maps work, and I want I want to use Google Maps. But
0: we should probably explain to listeners that who should see i would urge them to see uh, at least one of these videos uh, somewhere uh that they show that you know they're sending barometric pressure data they're sending like uh uh of, of of they're monitoring of your motion so they can tell whether you're jogging or bicycling or sleeping or what you're doing and they're and they're updating you know with with like your altitude and cross referencing to all these things constantly
1: yeah, and then that was the part that was probably the most shocking to me—the fact that, you know, like every time it would send something uh, to Google, it would give a confidence level about what you were doing. It would say ninety percent, ninety-seven percent certain he's walking, three percent bi- bicycling, and it uses the barometer to apparently it's a proxy for height or altitude to try and get us. It's all—it's all trying to give Google a sense of what are you doing at any moment. And that's the part that was shocking you know, to me. I thought maybe once in a while it would say where you were just to get maps to work. But this is much more, much, much more uh, data than I had expected. Uh, the other surprising thing, Doug, was the way that he set up the experiment. Uh, you know, He bought a phone uh, at Best Buy and set it up with no apps whatsoever. All he did was the very bare minimum. Like
0: just the bare bones phone.
1: The bare bones phone, no apps, and no, it was just connected to Wi-Fi, no cellular. So no apps, no cell, just Wi-Fi and his his purpose was what is it he wants to know what is the google operating system doing what is android communicating at every second that's all he wanted to know and so with this little device that he that he hooked up to the phone to decrypt that information Then you got to see it, and when you see it being scrolling uh, over and over, you know every second, the amount of data—that's the part that was so shocking, because you you know this is all hidden from the normal user.
0: Right, people are, everyone seems shocked to discover how much of their information is being sent. The question is, why is Google gathering such detailed information, and what, what, to what purpose are they putting this? We know they're selling uh, the data about us, personal profiles. Is that just making the profile incredibly specific?
1: I think that's it. I think uh, because you know at least from what the video said and what my understanding is you know google is basically an advertising company so the more specific the more they can know you if they're able to predict exactly what behavior you're going to do based on all that data that's streaming in then they can target these perfect these these perfectly these perfectly precisely targeted ads to you because if they can predict, oh, he's probably going to go in this store at this time, and he's probably going to be hungry, then they send you an ad at a certain time, you're much more likely to click on that ad, to respond to it, to actually purchase whatever the product is. And I think that's the purpose of all the streaming data, although they would probably claim, well, it's also to make the apps better, to make to make our service right. better, we want to know you better so we can tar- send your ads you actually like. There probably is some truth to that. You, there are ads that are probably more to your liking, but... It's well, a little scary that they know, well, kind of know what you're going to do. Let's
0: cross-reference this into the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal with Facebook. I mean, what they were able to do through personality profiles was know, with great precision, the most effective way to pitch a political ad to someone. Now, in this case, could we not say that if Google knows to the nth degree what you're doing, what you're engaged in, they can use various algorithms to make to come to conclusions about you that allows you to be that much more effectively manipulated.
1: I think it is possible but I would say it's probably I don't think Google would be able to do that to the degree Facebook can because as as Peter Lord pointed out in the video, you know, with Facebook you're giving all this infor- much more rich information all the time. You know, you're you're giving it all sorts of things about what you like and and what you do. Google, you know, it's more about the location and
0: but Google uh, is able to infer all those same things based on your searches on Facebook and things you're looking at, how much time you're spending on it. And it seems to me, that in, in the Google and Facebook are kind of two peas in a pod.
1: Actually, can I? I'm gonna do say that over because you're right. Because I was thinking, I'm thinking. I was just thinking of the video, but you're right. When you think of all the searches and things. Well, think, about, yeah. think about how so, you. Would so respond, let me. How do you think about?
0: Yeah, you're right. Think about how you respond to what I would say. Right. Just don't yeah. don't backtrack. Just go forward.
1: Well, you make a good point, Doug. Um, you know, in addition to all the location information, which was the main thrust of that one video we were talking about, you, uh, through Google, you know, the searches that you do on Google do reveal a lot about your personality, what you like, uh, and so in, in in a lot of ways, what you do with Google is very similar to what you do, with how you interact with Facebook, and so theoretically, the ads that Google serves up could be manipulated in a way. That, that Cambridge Analytica did. So I think you're right. I think well, it, it's, but
0: Cambridge Analytica is famous now all around the world for what it did in the election. But there are there are company there's there's company after company after company that's receiving this specific information that then in in turn then sells it to the to the people that are trying to to market to you.
1: I I think so. That's, I mean, they must yeah. be
0: taking from Google, Facebook, and anyone who'll send them information.
1: There's, there's a question of transparency here because you know you wonder. Uh, it, it would seem like Google. If it wanted to really be in tune with its, you know, it says in its charter, you know, do no evil, you know, supposedly. So uh, if it really wanted to be transparent, it should tell people like, well, where where is all this data? You know, where is it going? Like, What company, what are the the kind of companies that we interact with? What are the companies that are going to get access to this data? Because not everybody does get it. I mean, Peter Lord was saying in the video that you know all this location data was going just to google imagine if you can get a piece of that you can make a lot of money probably i don't know how much of that information is being given or sold to well i don't
0: think any of us really do at this point and i think we'd like to i'd like to
1: i think that's one of the that's probably one of the top issues of this new decade is going to be the control of data the transparency of data being able being able to maybe even monetize it there are companies already springing up now uh, where you supposedly will have the right to charge for for someone to use your data um, now you know how many companies are going to actually sign on to this sort of a service who knows but at least the issues are being raised people are talking about it companies are springing up because they realize there's a market there there's a huge burgeoning market for people that want to be private people that that want to use services that don't track you or at least are transparent about how they track you so
0: but this they're telling us privacy's dead. I mean, they're telling us again and again. You forget it. I mean, they're, you, everywhere you go, walking down the street now, they're going to be having cameras telling who you are and where you are.
1: Well, maybe we should think of that old Mark Twain quote. You know that, which is, the, if I can paraphrase the uh, the reports of privacy's death have been greatly exaggerated. You think so? I think so. Yeah, I think privacy is going to come back uh, with. Uh, you know, it's very possible that a new service could could more than one service could arise. That the selling point would be we're private. Come to us. We're not going to track you. We can do all the things these other guys do, but you'll be private. And they'll. You know, it may not be as huge a market as Google and Facebook, but it'll be a significant share, and it might be enough to make a decent amount of money.
0: Well, do we need to start looking at things like DuckDuckGo in lieu of Google? That they the claim they don't send their, your information and sell it to you sell your data that as does Google.
1: I think that's. Yeah. I mean,
0: but then I've heard stories that well they also they also do record your data and, and pass it along just not as much.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know the exact innards of DuckDuckGo, but yeah, yeah. Certainly, services like DuckDuckGo and others like that are gonna be are going I think they're gonna rise in popularity because of the huge publicity, you know, against these big you know giants like Google and Facebook and, and what they're doing. More and more people are aware of it. More and more people are starting to come around to the things that you've been saying on your show for a long time. And I think that's only gonna make more and more people investigate companies like DuckDuckGo and who knows, there might be it could be that uh, a company will come along that sort of does a suite where they do all the things that DuckDuckGo does, plus you know, this what's other company does and maybe two or three together could form, you know, an alliance that then you can use all those a, as a counter to
0: Proton Mail.
1: Proton Mail, Mr. McMillan Leak says. It up. That's right. So Proton Mail, you know, and other other services what? that that, that supposedly okay. will be, uh, a, so you'll be able to do what Gmail and 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 Google and Facebook do without well, can having. You?
0: That's the question I have. I mean, it's 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 easy to find a different search engine. H- how easy is it to find a, uh, a a social media company that has two billion people around the world attached? That's
1: a great point. See, that's w- there's there's much more stickiness with Facebook than there is with Google. With Google, you can go to another search engine. If an, in fact that's how Google really. You know, came to be because, you know, Yahoo back in the day in, in 1998, Yahoo was the number one thing. Yahoo was what everyone used, and Google was this young upstart, but they did search better than Yahoo. Yahoo was being gamed at the time. And so, very quickly, Google took over. Now, that's because it's, it's less sticky with search. Like you were saying, you can switch on a dime. But with Facebook, my gosh, two million people, you, all your friends, all, the, all these people, all these photos you put on there, it's so sticky. You, you put so much into it. That it's much harder to switch. You're right. And, and and who's going to go to another service? The argument would be if all your friends are back on Facebook. But if everybody left en mass, then then it could work.
0: I know that's, that's a silly true. question. It's obviously we're giving away that we're not we're not millennials. <laughs> no millennials are on Facebook.
1: Well, I don't know about that, Doug. I'm a millennial. I don't know what you're talking about.
0: Okay, boomer. <laughs>
1: Intimate interaction uh, online than Facebook is because with Facebook you're always putting your best face forward, no pun intended. You're 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 putting the stuff on there that you want people to see, and you're interacting with it in a very guarded manner, in the sense that you want it to, you know, things always to look good. With Google, you know, you search for things, you know how it is. I mean, you you it could be almost anything, and it could be things that maybe you wouldn't want other people to know about.
0: I know. By the way, that search that I made on Google for like how to refine plutonium. You know that was I was just kidding.
1: Oh, I'm going to make a note in my file, Doug. I'm putting okay. it down right now.
0: Well, let's wrap it up at this point and Continue this conversation because we have a lot to talk about in the in this subject. But it's it's a lot to digest in one you know one gulp.
1: It'll be very interesting to see with this new decade how things evolve. And I think privacy you that, that's that's the one prediction I'm going to make. I think it's going to make a comeback.
0: Come back soon, Donald Rose. Thank you, Doug. Radio Parallax's Computer dude. All right, in the six or seven minutes we have left, I'd like to start out with a statistic. We haven't done one of those in a while. The stat today is that 57% of Americans now think President Trump committed an impeachable offense in withholding military aid to Ukraine. 52% say that Trump's Ukraine actions or his unwillingness to cooperate with the impeachment inquiry justify removing him from office. And 57% of Americans think the upcoming Senate trial should include new witnesses. This includes 66% of Democrats and 48% of Republicans. All right, let's see if we can close the show on a lighter note. Let's go with the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for political correctness with the news that the University of Miami is warning its students not to use the dismissive phrase, okay, boomer, University officials acknowledge that young people have pent-up frustrations about having inherited a planet plagued by the ravages of climate change. But they said that OK Boomer intolerantly portrays older folks as out of touch and technologically impaired. Well, on behalf of that generation known as Baby Boomers, well on behalf of that generation known as Baby Boomers, I guess all I can say to millennials is sorry for the mess, guys. But I'm sure you'll turn things right around. And it was, on the other hand, a bad week for arts and crafts with the news that two Mississippi men, Otis Latham and Russell Sparks, were charged with trying to claim a $100,000 lottery prize with a ticket whose quote-unquote winning numbers were glued on. And lastly, we'd have to say it was an ugly week for street cred with the news that Death Row Records, the hip-hop label founded by Dr. Dre and the now-jailed Suge Knight, is now a wholly-owned subsidiary, wait for it, of the Hasbro Toy Company. This has prompted Hasbro chairman Brian Goldner to say, and I quote, Our businesses are highly complementary with substantial synergies and a great cultural fit. Well, we're not sure how Hasbro is going to come out with a new line of toys with the Death Row theme, but we'll just have to see. That just about does it for today's program, which was produced by Mr. Edward McMillan. Our thanks to Mr. Donald Rose for his insights and hope we'll have more of those in the future. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. We're aiming in the weeks to come to bring you Greg Bell to talk about old-time radio, and possibly NPR's Steve Inskeep to talk about John C. Fremont and his wife, which is an interesting story. And God knows, with any luck, we may be able to land you Robin, Mr. Burt Ward. We're going to try. Maybe we'll we'll find out what he thinks about that new Joker movie. Anyway, we'll see you next week. And in the meantime, go Niners. I'm a
1: Joker. I'm a smoker. I'm a miz. I sure don't want to hurt no one. I'm a picker, I'm a grinner, I'm a lover, and I'm a sinner.